This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. In Caroline O'Donoghue's most recent novel, The Rachel Incident, the eponymous Rachel is finding her way as a young person in Cork, Ireland. She's a student of promise and an employee at a bookstore where she works with her best friend, James. She imagines a life in and of books, perhaps as a writer or in publishing. Her rather ordinary life is suddenly turned upside down when the embers of a crush for her charismatic professor, Fred Byrne, are doused when it is revealed that his affections are for James instead. Rachel finds herself in a complicated foursome in which she'll take a job with Fred's wife while helping to spin a web of lies and deception required for James and Fred to proceed with their affair. Told in a wholly original voice in waves of comedy and angst, the Rachel incident dramatizes a moment of youthfulness in which transgressions against friends and those in our tiny social orbits ripple outward and change lives in unexpected and sometimes tragic, sometimes beautiful ways. A story of many kinds of desire, loves of every flavor develop, evolve, bloom, and die on the vine making the Rachel incident a very different sort of love story. With every turn of the labyrinth, we find that Caroline unsettles our commonplace assumptions, our gut judgments, and our prejudices and preconceptions. Both seated in a tradition of campus novels and fully distinct from that lineage, the Rachel incident captivates precisely because it keeps you guessing while asking you to look back at your own youth to find, perhaps, some tenderness in its foibles. 
Caroline O'Donoghue is an Irish author, journalist, and host of the award-winning podcast, Sentimental Garbage. Her previous work includes a trilogy for young adults, the first of which, All Our Hidden Gifts, is under option to a major international indie, with Caroline adapting it for long-form TV drama. On publication of her first novel, Promising Young Women, she was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards Newcomer of the Year and the Kate O'Brien Award. Her next adult novel, Scenes of a Graphic Nature, was published in 2020 and is in development as a feature. She has a regular column for the Irish Examiner. Caroline was born in Cork, but currently lives in London. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Hi, Chris. What a thoughtful opening. Thank you. I really am, am so glad to get to talk to you. And I'm, I'm looking at the cover of the Knopf edition of the book, and what a gorgeous, gorgeous painting. And I looked up the, the painter. He's an Israeli painter. And I, and I wonder if you had any say in, in, in the wonderful painting that we see on the cover. Do you know what? That's such an interesting question because I um no, I know I I didn't select that painter. I hadn't heard of him before um before they found that image. And then when I did see his work, I reached out to see if I could buy his work, and <laughs> it's far too expensive for me. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you owned it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, do you do it in the postcard? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping that someday when when Rachel gets made into TV, that I can, you know. I'll be my art owning era, but um, it's interesting that you bring up the cover um, or, and on your covers actually, because this you know, the, this was uh, simultaneously brought out in the UK and the US, and on the UK, on the UK cover, it's this sort of um, a photograph of a of a young woman with a sort of a fairish hair, with her head turned away from mostly from the camera. And in the US cover, it's a woman with sort of fairish ready hair with her had turned away from the viewer and in both cases both sets of fans have reached out to me or readers or friends living in other countries have reached out to me and said is this you like either is this a photograph of you um in the case of the english cover or is this a painting of you in the u.s cover and purely because i'm a i'm a woman with that sort of hair but i think what they were really getting at is um frequently with this book more so than the five that have preceded it I have been getting some version of the question, is this you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I find really interesting to get um, for the first time in your career so far in, you know? Yeah, yeah, because usually that's the first book thing, right? Totally, totally. And I think I have um, really sidestepped that, first of all, because my, my first book was um, very much inspired by a kind of Angela Carter, Daphne du Maurier style of literature where I was playing with the gothic and the unreal. And so, because grown-ups are like, well, I don't believe in magic, so (laughs) 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 no place in truth. Um, And then my second novel was told from the point of view of an English main character who was also a lesbian woman, and I'm demonstrably not an English or a lesbian, so I got off the hook with that. And then then I had a trilogy for teenagers that, once again, was about magic, so I got off the hook with that. And now, because this is a book that is... um, mimics my own autobiography in in quite visible ways and I don't mean to say that because I'm some famous person but I find it increasingly interesting that we have this new way of reading novels whereby yes, nobody yeah. is, is it, nobody's ever reading a novel without their phone six inches from them 
And if I like a novel, for example, I just read um, Tom Lake by Anne Patchett, and I didn't really know very much about Anne Patchett, but suffice to say, I was Googling Anne Patchett the entire time to see what might map up. And I, mm. and it's interesting because The Rachel Incident is a novel where the most amount of details line up in a way that readers are therefore tempted to say, is this you? That's fascinating. And I, I hadn't thought of it precisely in the in the phone terms, but that's oh. so right. We just, we, we've got the phone there next to us while we're reading, whether oh. we're, you know, good boys and girls or not. And, <laughs> yeah. and then we're, you know, we're Googling, we're finding details and we're saying, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, then she went to school there. Well, it must be that precise yeah. moment and that okay. campus. And but I also, you know, as a as somebody who thinks a lot about contemporary literature, I always want to push that a little bit aside uh, and and allow fiction to to exist in in worlds that certainly can have details from one's life, but that in all sorts of ways destabilize that notion. Do you do you want that as a writer, or do you encourage the sort of like Google and and what? app? Absolutely. In that, like, I am, I'm in your camp firmly, Chris, in that I, I sometimes can't believe how hard, how hard people find it to grasp that writers take details from the lived experience and then mm. transport them into unreal experiences and they're in this <laughs> fiction. It's like, I can't believe every time a new novel comes out, like 12 times a week in every literary paper, we have to be like, <laughs> it's so crazy to me that we have to keep relearning this lesson and for me it was it was a deliberate prank um mm -hmm. and or or whatever you want to call it in that i wanted to have this this girl who she mimics my autobiography in that we both grew up in the same place we both emigrated at the same time um and we even have some sort of similar similar physicality but that you would be reading this novel that feels very much like okay this is someone going through a recession struggling with love and friendship it feels like a you know a, a fictionalized memoir and then you have this character doing these in many ways unconscionable things and mm. it gets mm. very naughty and almost like a soap opera very uh quickly and uh, it's sort of like what i always read like oh, did, this, did this happen to her <laughs> <laughs> I think they think I think they think writers are are braver or or something that yeah. they would want out these extraordinary transgressions and terrible things they've done supposedly in their fiction. But I I don't know many writers who love to have that sort of splashed out in the world the worst exactly. moments in their lives. No, so, yeah, it feels like a. I don't know. It's quite school marmish to be like i'm teaching you all a lesson <laughs> like, <laughs> how dare you ask another female writer about her life i'm gonna use my life and then blow it up you know and use the bare facts of my life and then create the most salacious soap opera you can dream of you know i, I mean it's a needed lesson so school okay. marmish or not i <laughs> i i think fiction loses a little bit of its power if it's always just a, a mirror of autobiographical details yeah, and it's also, I mean, as somebody who thinks a lot, a lot, a lot about these things, I'm sure you're in the same boat. Where you know, I'm thinking like, okay, well, you know, there's the the cliche of like, okay, w uh, women, particularly young women, use their personal experience in order to uh, write uh, fiction. That wink, wink, we know it isn't fiction, kind of thing. Um, and then it's like, okay, so then therefore we have to go out of our way to prove that we research or prove that we make it up you can often time and time again when you see authors in interviews 
And they're almost going out of their way to tell you how much they were in the New York Public Library learning about trains. <laughs> they're, so, they're so awkward about having even had a single lived experience that then became a chapter. <laughs> the imagination is the most personal thing what we have. It is completely made up of yeah. human experiences and emotions and like, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's a real bee in my bottle I get sometimes. I realize it's a completely circular argument. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I agree with you entirely. <laughs> I, I think it's somewhat of a misnomer to call the Rachel incident a campus novel. But, mm -hmm. that's, but that's somewhat the case with all campus novels, as they most often find their drama off campus. That's mm. certainly the case here, where the city of Cork the bookstore where James and Rachel work and Fred Burns' apartment are the storehouses of a lot of the plot. Mm. But that said, it is a novel about students and professors, about a certain moment in our lives in which we're incredibly naive while feeling quite worldly. What's your take on the campus novel? Was that a tradition you had in mind when you were writing this? And how does the university itself play as a character or a space or a mood in the novel? It's so fascinating that you say that about campus novels, because even when I think of them now, they all of the great campus novels that I love, like Bright Tent Revisited or The Secret History, have very little to do with the colleges themselves, even though even Bright Tent is so famous for that Oxford vibe. But it, I think I feel like it's like maybe a fifth of the novel even happened yeah. Oxford and yeah, the yeah. is in memory. And I think what's interesting about campus novels, and as you say, all the great ones, they don't feature the campus that heavily in secret history. It's almost like that, that sort of, um, that fake Bennington college or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like the character, the main character, it's like what he can't, what he, he, he thought he could come to a university to find some kind of either artistic or internal or social enlightenment. And then he turns to this group of people because of what he couldn't find there. Right. Yeah. It's so yeah. disappointing, the actual right. campus, that right. he, the fervor of these students outside of the, the campus walls yeah. is yeah. what it seems to fulfill it or promises and then fails to. Yes, exactly. So I think all good campus novels are about the the promise and the disappointment of what you think you're going to find at university versus what you don't find. And I think... Um, that's that's really interesting to me because obviously if a, a true campus novel would be about going to classes and joining joining the drama society or whatever and that's not interesting <laughs> um, although I will say a, a recent one that does spend a lot of time on campus both it's it's two books actually is um Elif Bartman's uh, the idiot followed by either or I don't know if you've read those huh? no I haven't and I, I, I certainly own them but <laughs> I, well, I've been meaning to that. Yes, they're 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 really extraordinary. But they she does just make the campus this like the omnipresent thing, and you know so perhaps that's uh, the exception to the rule. Really, I yeah. when I when I think about you know American campus novels, first of all, there's just a billion of them right now, and they they all stretch and and twist the. The tradition in in wonderful ways, uh, but I I wonder about because you know campus life is very different in in Europe and and in Ireland than it is in the U.S. where you tend to have these very residential campuses and everyone is living on the campus itself versus apartments around the place, and I wonder if you sense that that lends a difference to, from 
US versions of the campus novel to ones perhaps in the Irish tradition or UK tradition writ large? It's hard for me to say because I think almost everyone you speak to about their university or campus experience, the first thing they say, and maybe maybe it's just unique to my household and, and me and my husband, but it's it's um, everyone seems to say, oh, I, I wouldn't really know what the normal experience is because my experience was X kind of thing. And, and I th- yeah, that obviously everyone's un- personal experience is unique to them. But my personal experience of university was slightly unique, I guess, in that I grew up in this university town, which is Cork City. And um, well, I mean, it's unfair to call it a university town because I guess that implies that it's the only thing that's happening in the university. There's more, it's like the second biggest city in Ireland. You know, it has kind of tech companies and things like that. But the university is a huge part of the city. And so when I was quite young, I would say 15 or 16, I, you know, I had a lot of older siblings and I was always borrowing fake IDs from somebody or somebody's girlfriend. And I was kind of, I sort of had a very active nightlife from quite a young age. And um, then by the time I got around to actually, so, so in between sort of my teens and time to go to university, the economy really crashed. And the, there, it made no sense for me to spend a lot of money to go to a university that was out of town. When I could just live at home and go to university for quite a low price, really. And so what what that sort of affected in me was I was 18 years old and attending university and all these people who were coming to Cork from different places all around Ireland and in some places, different places all over the world and to have this exciting experience. And I sort of felt like a chewed up old whore next to them. <laughs> I just felt like I've done it all. I've seen it all. <laughs> 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 and everything was just sort of so exciting to me and I was so bored and so sarcastic and mm. then I also had this experience where um, my English course was so huge and this also mimics Rachel so huge that like it was impossible to kind of gain any purchase socially uh, yes yeah um, and every time you would talk to somebody in a seminar you suddenly wouldn't see them again and then you would find out they had dropped out and so I just found it, even though I'm a pretty social person, I found it really hard to do anything other than attend classes at university. So I would attend classes and then I would leave and I would go work at my job, which was um, at HMB, which I, I believe is like the UK and Irish equivalent of like a Virgin Megastore. Okay. Um, yeah. And that was like, that was a very, that was where my life happened, I feel, for those three and a half years where that was my empire records where just people stood around and talked all day about books and music and really lit each other up. And th- then I thought I got, w- when I finally got around to writing the Rachel incident two years, a year and a half ago during COVID anyway, um, somebody said to me, we, I was having a similar conversation as like this about campus novels. And they were talking about, you know, obviously Sally Rooney's normal people and uh, made Binchy circle of friends and about how oh, yeah, there, had sure. never, there had never been a, Cork campus novel and what that mm, looked like. I was thinking they were all yeah. Dublin one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, that got me really excited, the idea of like what a Cork campus novel would look like. And then I the, I remember saying to that person, I was like, well, it wouldn't, for if I were to do something like that, all of it would take place in the person's part-time job. And that's what ends up happening with the Rachel incident. Yeah, and it really does, it separates it from a lot of the the campus novels I've read recently. And I did find that fascinating that it, 
it takes place in Cork when so much of the Irish scene seems to be dominated by Dublin mm. and and even Trinity in particular. Mm -hmm. But it um but that idea of Rachel finding you know, a social life, a intellectual life, a cultural life in her part-time job, and also how the economic recession is is making her wonder what is the value of this education that she's getting? Is there going to be a job or is it just that you have to leave Ireland no matter what? And that the way in which the the recession creeps into the bookstore and it's its possible demise. Uh, it, it's there everywhere. It has its tendrils in all parts of the plot. And it seems assuredly that you wanted to to make clear that that moment, that everyone had that on on their minds all the time. Can you talk about the, the economic yeah. straits and how it just involves itself everywhere? It's so fascinating. I, I, wonder, I wonder if you're like this, Chris, where if you have a set of memories, but you don't have anybody to talk about those memories with the memories simply fade. Like for me, mm. memories are always activated, animated and embroidered by chatting about them. Yeah, and, absolutely. And because I moved here 12 years ago, I, I very, very much because of the recession. So I moved in 2011 and I moved to London. And yes, there was certainly a backsplash of the recession happening in that graduate jobs were impossible to get and the cost of living was very difficult but on the whole people were getting by the way London always gets by and then I you know made my crowd of London-centric friends and all of them were either from other countries or from other places in the UK and Nobody had quite had the experience of the economic recession the way that we had in Ireland, where it was so concentrated and so shocking. And I think a large part of that is to do with the fact that um, the kind of the emergent middle class in Ireland is, is quite a unique thing in that, like, it was such a poverty stricken, not even poverty stricken, because that makes it sound like it was sudden. A, more of a poverty-soaked country <laughs> uh. um, for so long, for decades, and then you know, in the in the early '90s, things just turned around, and there was this sort of class of new money that was so exciting and and very much the the world I was born into, and pretty much everybody I knew had money in some way, like even people who like. They're, they didn't live in an amazing neighborhood, but they still went on two holidays a year and had, you know, great stuff on their birthdays. Mm. And then in 2008, it all changed so suddenly. Like I, I went to a, to give you sort of an example of it, I went to like a very uh, lovely girls private school in the middle of Cork City. And when I was at the beginning of sort of my, I guess in our, in America, you'd call it your sophomore year um second year of high school or okay no the the second to last year oh okay uh is junior oh great so i was my junior year oh this feels very exotic which makes, <laughs> which makes no sense but no it makes no sense i can't understand that now so many so many teen movies will make sense to me now but before <laughs> um when i was my junior year the my year had maybe 160 pupils and by my senior year there was, I think, 40 pupils left in the, in my year, you know, because everybody had oh left gosh. Wow. because their, their, their parents could no longer afford the fees, you know, and, um, 
or maybe there was other reasons, but that's certainly the, that that was certainly how the numbers shook down. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just don't think that many places were struck in such a dramatic way. And so for many years, I almost before lots of people from my childhood started emigrating over as well. I had no one really to talk to about this stuff. And so I just sort of forgot it happened. And then during COVID, I um, my friend Ryan, who was kind of part of the inspiration for the character of James in the book, he was living close to me. We both bought bicycles the way everyone bought bicycles. And we used to go, we started going on like walks and bike rides together. And we would just talk about what it was like back then and all of these memories sort of came flooding back and just became em embroidered by conversation and it just felt like you know when you're a writer and you realize that you have a unique perspective on something and that your life experience wasn't necessarily wasted and it could have value or insight you you, you want to pin that down as quickly as possible you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's really interesting that idea about memory as something that if it's not shared, it disappeared. Uh, it disappears. I, I certainly find that true in my own life. But I, I think it's interesting how then a novel, either through discussions you're having in real life or discussions you're sort of having against a, the sounding board of the novel itself, mm. brings those brings those memories into existence. And it seems yeah. like that happened here. Uh, it's yeah. the case of with many campus novels that they delight in recounting the bad behavior of male professors with most <laughs> often female students. It's almost omnipresent, not always, but almost. Yeah, yeah. You play a wonderful sleight of hand by making us think that Rachel's crush on her larger-than-life professor, Fred Byrne, is going to go in that direction. And then you sort of pull the rug out from underneath of us. And we mm -hmm. find that that the questionable behavior is, in fact, with James breaking that paradigm. It, there is a double transgression there that adds new life to this very old story of power dynamics. What was interesting to you about changing that paradigm? I, I find it really fascinating in general to have, um, to, to you know, I, maybe, I don't know, maybe this will be something I realize the further I get into this. I, I really like pranking the audience. Or the reader. <laughs> um, for, you, for example, my first novel, Promising Young Women, it was um, very important to me that it opened as if it were a Bridget Jones diary or maybe a Nick Hornby novel or a Marion Keyes novel, which mm -hmm. I'm a fan of all those things usually. Um, but then that it would slowly become this kind of uh, an Angela Carter thing or a Daphne du Maurier that were just felt like gothic and unreal and um, and how how fun that is is when it, when a reader is expecting that they're they're treading down a very well trodden path, and then they realize that there's all these spooky, scary trees have grown up around that path. Mm -hmm. um, and and with this, it was like taking this extremely expected and quite boring trope at this point. And I think for me, part of exploding that very boring trope was. I'm sorry, that's that's mean, boring. I mean, lots of people do very exciting things with it, but you don't even mean... It can be boring. I mean, it, it can feel overdone. Overdone, yeah. And I guess it's overdone because it's a common story, and yeah, that's not great for society, but... Um, no, no. But I suppose in the post-kind of Me Too era, and my first novel really dealt with, with that a lot, I actually kind of, it was very, very strange in that I, I wrote it in 2016 it came out 
in 2018 as the Me Too movement was happening. And it was very much a response to uh, sort of sexual power dynamics in, in workplaces. So it was a very strange moment to be in the middle of my predominant emotion was 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 rage. And I think I also worked for like a feminine, a feminist website and I was in my late 20s and I just felt this coursing rage all the time um, at what women were forced to go through and and also rage that the things that I found attractive were also the things that were looking to destroy me. And I, for that, I don't mean specifically men. I mean men seeming powerful or, or, or being domineering or all these things that I knew were red flag behavior in that they often led to more exploitative things. But I was also attracted to and how annoying that is. <laughs> and, um, and I felt like I had a very... Un, I sort of, even though I've been with my partner for ten years, I this I, this kind of callous grew up and around me, vis-a-vis male behavior in general and men in general, which didn't. I mean, I still love my brothers and my friends and my boyfriend, but I just felt really impatient with all of it. And as time has moved on from that moment, that impatience has worn away, and I I guess I'm more interested in. Like Dr. Byrne is a very shady character in that he is sort of risked it all just to drink from the fountain of youth. He's deeply cowardly. He's incredibly selfish. But I also feel like such tenderness for that character and the things that he's a victim of and why he does the things he does. And I just feel a real softness for him. And there's parts of the novel where Rachel, she breaks off from recounting this man's things that he did to her and to her friend and she just starts crying because she can't believe how lovely he was in some moments and mm. that was that was a part of I, I wanted to really dig into that and these things are painful because because we love these people you know yeah I guess that was why I wanted to it wasn't just out of a prank instinct to, to really piss off the reader or to wrong foot the reader it was also very much a well, how do we keep loving people who wrong us? And all you know, again, and I and I feel like novels are so much better equipped to give people nuance, even who are craven and mm. make bad decisions, and and yet the the way a narrative can texture that can can give moments of of beauty and goodness to someone who seems like they don't deserve it in in a moment when I feel like. All of our other forms of media digestion of news pillory, no matter what, and it's yeah. and there there is no there is no gray area, and there is no room for someone being both things, both having mm -hmm. done horrible wrongs and having human qualities of goodness about them. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that those people don't don't deserve some of the pillory that happens. But at the same time, the novel reminds us about a, a kind of universal humanity. Yeah, exactly. To yeah, totally. It's interesting because I was, um, this is kind of a different subject, but hopefully it leaks back. Um, the I don't know how much this Russell Brand conversation has been hitting the US. Yeah, a little I've, bit. I, I've just been following um, it a touch with the BBC dropping him and everything. Yes, yes, and so, so, so obviously it's 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 hideous, and 
and even more obviously every single person I know in London knew about it for years and Gosh, why is that always the way it's always the way always um like I remember being at a Christmas party two years ago and somebody was telling me about an experience they had with him that was just the most devastating thing you'd ever heard but how I've noticed in the coverage of it there was this interesting um the way they because obviously nobody has footage of these terrible things that he did they use the stand-up and the um bits on the bbc shows he's done or panel shows he's done to illustrate the monster that he is and using sort of like you know, very problematic uh bits of speech or whatever and i'm not saying that that those things aren't evidenced of what a monster he was but and is but what those clips taken out of context are suggesting is and we all went along with it and look at all the audience laughing and smiling and we're uh, he's a monster but aren't we monsters too aren't the villagers holding the torches as bad as frankenstein himself kind of that's the sort of message we're supposed to get from that and it's interesting because having lived through that moment firsthand i was like well yes okay yes people are laughing at his as, as he made these jokes but i think they're missing the context of that particular moment which was kind of the early noughties of when like it was there we had just come off such a toxic time for or i mean it's always toxic time for women but a toxic time for women in the media where it was like you know circle of shame like circle the woman's cellulite in the magazine who's gained weight who's lost weight like it was a really horrible britney's very good crotch shot i actually talk about this in the novel quite a bit um and all this sort of paris hilton sex tapes and stuff and what was appealing about the Russell Brand thing in that moment was like, well, here's this guy and he loves sort of the, the sort of like the raw rutting mammalry of us all just like sweating and fucking in the mud. And there was something exciting about that in the moment of this guy just kind of like strolling out onto the BBC and being like, women, you can be as gross as you want. I'll fuck you. I'll fuck all of you. <laughs> you know? And it, and it was it was so interesting that like, in that moment, that felt really rebellious and really interesting. And I remember being interested in it. It's, it's just amazing how the framing of these things change as you get older. And it's it's tempting to boo at the people in that audience who are cheering. But you kind of also have to understand where they're coming from, you know? Yeah, I, I, that's really nice contextualization and, and helps me understand a little bit better why he was so popular in that moment. Yeah, and it was, and he was everywhere. It was, it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it was kind, of, it was an omnipresence over here. Sorry, this is not a local fan podcast. It's just on my mind a lot this week. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. No, of course, of course. <laughs> and, it, you know, the, and this is, these are fundamental questions in the Rachel incident. So it's, they, they, they parallel. Yeah. The, this is a novel that's so much about voice. Rachel's cleverness, her wit, her observational powers make this narrative feel fresh and new. I, I wonder how the nature of its backward-looking perspective, Rachel's recollection of this peaked time in her youth, makes that voice or made that voice an interesting challenge to you. 
She both has to carry the wisdom of having lived through it all and come out on the other end, while viewing it in, in recollections with something like a youthful naivete. What kind of hurdles did you encounter in trying to thread that needle? And did you find Rachel's voice immediately, or did it take you some time to, to grow into it and wear it properly? Yeah, it was, it was so funny. She came to me immediately. Um, it was lovely. It was really lovely. And I think um, it had a lot to do with the novels that I was reading, uh, rereading, actually. I had that thing during COVID where, you know, everything that I read that was new um, felt too difficult. So I just kept, I kept coming back to sort of old classics. And the two books that I reread during that time were one of them is Brother of the More Famous Jack by Barbara Trapido. And the other was Les Divorce by Diane Johnson. Mm. Oh, I haven't thought about that in years. Oh my God, you should reread it. It's so good. It's so good. Um, but both of those also, they're different people, but they're of a similar age, I think. They're both in their like late 70s or 80s now. And um, they write about young womanhood in a past tense perspective. And the the eye is always this kind of very forward-looking, sort of jolly narrative of like, well, gosh, I was going around Paris and I was wearing a miniskirt. Men were saying horrible things to me, but Jesus, it was exciting to be alive kind of thing. <laughs> and, and sometimes terrible things happen to them. And like, there's some devastating moments in Les Divorce that really rip your heart out. But it's, uh, it, I just, it really got to me how it was really coming from the perspective of somebody who I knew turned out fine by the end of it. And, uh, and that was the secret to finding Rachel. I wanted, it really struck me that I had, read, I had read a couple of books in a row um, where it was young, very young women going through their lives, uh, whether it's their struggles with men or class or money or whatever. And they were, because they were lived day to day, they felt grim you know and I remember my very early 20s particularly just after I moved to London it felt really grim like you know never having enough money and always feeling unsure and how anxious I was all the time and how I was conscious of people you know making fun of my accent or whatever you know and that's as as, as much as it is thrilling to say poor me it's also so boring to hear about it <laughs> on a day-to-day on -day level where it's like well I went to a meeting again and and the MD did an Irish accent and, and it was embarrassing and strange and it's like well at the end of the day Caroline who cares do you know what I mean like 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 you know it's it, I just couldn't I couldn't keep on stomaching this vibe of like present tense atrocities that aren't that bad because I, I, I was just wearied by reading a lot of stuff like that lately. And I, I thought maybe with a past tense, we could put a little levity on things that were genuinely quite bad. <laughs> hmm. There is a way in which that, that older self, Rachel, is wants to both inhabit that younger self and re-embody um, re it so that she can understand those choices differently because they... They, I think, yeah. to to the older Rachel, seem impossible that she made those decisions. Yeah, and 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 I like that that she wears almost that youth like a like a mask that she can play in again, and so yeah. it feels. You know, I I was thumbing through it um, in preparation for this podcast. I haven't looked at it in a little while. 
I noticed that a recurring theme that comes up again and again, and I think it might just be laziness on my part rather than a, a trope, but it's her constantly talking about parallel worlds. She's 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 like, oh, there you know, there's a world in which I said the right things to carry that day, and there's a world in which I did this and this, that, and it's kind of a constant refrain. And I think that's him. It's kind of him. It's a, it's a bit lazy as a writer, but it's also when you're thinking about your own life, impossible not to implement right of like thinking mm-hmm. of all the other things that you could have done and how those worlds live in parallel uh in your mind it's amazing how we get any present tense living done when we have all these parallel worlds it's just true. living in our heads it, it's true the 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 what if i had chosen yeah. b is is such a feature of our daydreaming life oh. rachel's life and secrets that she keeps about fred and and james's ongoing affair ends up intertwining with her work and personal relationship with Fred's wife, Deanie, who who she hopes will make connections for her in the publishing world. Deanie is smart, put together, and professionally accomplished, the very things that Rachel would like to be. But Rachel sees her as, quote, that clueless wife of my best friend's lover. It's a complicated mess of a relationship. How did it take shape for you in the creative process? And what did you hope would develop from this really kind of, um, at first it seems sort of tangential to the to the affair, and then it becomes central to everything that R- Rachel does and the choices she makes? It's so interesting with her, because she's, with, D- with Deanie, I mean, it, it's like, there's some, and I can't really explain it, as a writer, and it, maybe it's one of those things that just can't be explained, and that's the magic of novels. But um, some people you kind of build from the ground up, or you take a, you know, a bunch of people from your past and you glue them together. And like I often say that Rachel's boyfriend Carrie, he's like a combination of all the sort of men I've ever seriously been in love with, um, and that is a Frankenstein portrait, you know, and. But with Deanie, she is just somebody who just walked in fully formed. And the first thing I knew about her is that she looks like Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Like she. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, you know, like I kind of um, definitely like I'm not saying that she goes in, you know, insane or anything, but um, the, or this kind of the, the all that black hair and those kind of unusual eyes and this kind of this fragility but great strength as well. And there's something that that, that uh, Rachel says about Dean early on, which is that it was like she it was like she felt very confident about being shy. Mm-hmm. And um, I, she's one of the characters I'm proudest of just because apart from Shelley Duvall, she's kind of based on nothing. <laughs> and um, and yeah, I, I what I found so interesting about writing her was there's lots of people who do bad things in this novel. Um, you know, I mean, every, I think everybody does something unconscionable in this novel, really, in mm-hmm. that um, Burn, the way he treats James and therefore Rachel and James sometimes, the way he kind of continuously betrays Rachel, even though they're closer than family. But Deanie is someone who, you know, her husband comes to her someday and says, you know, I have this great student uh, she's really bright. She's really struggling. Will you give her an internship? And that's as far as Deanie knows about it. Yeah. And Deanie says, well, you know, I can't, I can't really afford to do a thing like that, but sure, I, I can, I can find 50 quid a week and 
she can do some of my inbox clearance. And then from there, you know, Rachel proves herself to be highly confident in herself and Dini build this relationship and she kind of really does become Dini's assistant and works with her on further projects. But Dini is never inclined to pay her more. And it, it's kind of, and it's this interesting thing of like, she's exploiting Rachel the same way that, not the same way, but similarly to how her husband is exploiting James. And not to say that she's an evil character, because she's certainly not, but about how, I thought it was interesting about how you can think that you're helping someone and know that you're helping someone. But sometimes, and I guess I've experienced this a few times, you know, when somebody, you become somebody's protege and then you, when you outgrow the protege role, Mm-hmm. then it's sort of it's kind of existentially disarming for them to acknowledge that so they just don't as yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and that's and that's all that, that that's Dini's real sin is that she just kind of won't acknowledge that things are have, are changing around her you know mm-hmm. the one of my favorite scenes in the novel is the dinner party that Rachel attends at Fred and Dini's during which she realizes that Dini believes Fred is having an affair with her it is a masterclass in discomfort. Not only is she given the terrible cold shoulder by most of the guests, and certainly Dini, before she knows what really is going on, but she's never quite sure whether they're dismissing her because of the rumored affair or because she is professionally beneath them and not worth their time. Everything has a sickly bile hovering over it, including this sort of fish smell that's making Rachel feel horribly nauseous. It must have been fun and also devastating to write. And I wonder how you shaped it and, and how you wanted it to come off as, a, as an encapsulated scene. It's so, I'm so glad that you brought it up. It is, it is the scene that most people bring up as their, as their sort of favorite scene. And I do think it's probably the best thing I've ever written. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I felt that way when I was writing it. <laughs> oh, that's it. That rarely happens. That's amazing. I know. And it, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, you can, you can, you can sort of mystery of the flow state thing, I suppose. Like you can turn up to your work every day for 50 days in a row and just mulishly you know, pour out words into a document, most of which will go and get re-edited and reshaped in for subsequent drafts. And, um, but this was like, it was, I think it was probably the only time I ever really experienced flow <laughs> in a principal <laughs> way where I was like, oh my God, it's just all happening. And you were Kobe like, Bryant on the page. Oh my God. Yeah. The way I've been thinking about it was like, um, you know, mild teller and whiplash. This is the kind mm, of thing oh my God. Seriously. <laughs> but for, you know, Small dinner party scenes in Irish provincial novels. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I think, and I think that you know, it was it was a, a really fun and satisfying way to bring many plot points together and explode them. But I think it was also born of, um, you know, she's Rachel is at least fifteen years younger than every guest there. And she's either, even before she realizes she's been given the cold shoulder and she's not supposed to be there, there's kind of this horror of her having to like, like her her old lecturer is there and her lecturer's boyfriend is with her and the boyfriend sort of quizzes Rachel to see how well, yeah. how good a lecturer his girlfriend is. And it's witty. Oh, horrifying. And I suppose a lot of that, I mean, everyone has their own version of that in their head. And a lot of that for me is that, you know, I'm, 
I, I'm, I'm frequently the, or for a long time, I was frequently the youngest person in rooms. Like I'm, I'm the baby of my family. Um, I was young for my school year and I always, outside of school, I always had older friends. And even in London, people might not necessarily be older than you, but they're, they're frequently from a different class. And there are basically in London, there are so many more ways to feel inadequate <laughs> than you could mm. even imagine. <laughs> and, and, and we've all had that experience where, you know, you've been at a dinner and you're like, not only am I not wanted to hear, not only am I not wanted to hear, I, I really am a almost oil and water chemical bond level don't belong here. <laughs> and it, mm. it's I, I found the I found the professional insecurity that she was she was feeling to be so recognizable. I can remember early on in my professoriate days uh, being invited to a party that was largely uh, attended by people at a much fancier university than than I was at and and kind of being in these conversations that would end very suddenly or the person would suddenly need a drink and oh, and it yeah. often was when they found out that I was teaching at this other place and I and I thought of Rachel in that moment and yeah. and how she so desperately wanted to see herself as possibly one day part of this kind of scene and and at the same time just feeling so, so deprived of any opportunity to actually exist yeah. there. Oh, it's horrifying, isn't it? Being a person is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And then hell is other people. So yeah. you got to do. <laughs> I know, I know. The question of abortion hangs over Rachel's story. Because of the historical setting prior to the legalization of some kinds of abortion in Ireland, the only option for Rachel, should she decide to terminate the, the pregnancy, is a, is a trip outside the country. Americans currently, as you know, are roiled with outrage and fear of, uh, after the striking down of Roe versus Wade. And I wonder how you approach the question of reproductive rights in the novel from the Irish context. It's so interesting that you bring up the Roe versus Wade thing because um, the novel was acquired by Jenny Jackson, who's been on this podcast before. Yeah, at, that's right. <laughs> now, I just listened to her episode this this afternoon. It was lovely. Um, and she acquired the novel, and the following week, Roe was overturned. And oh my goodness, it was just this this strange thing. I didn't know Jenny at all, and I just you know, other than having a couple of Skype meetings or Zoom meetings about the book. And it felt it felt so strange. Uh, obviously, it's, you know, I have no real heart in it, but to, to it felt like passing a baton in a way um, in that. So I, I grew up uh, constantly with the knowledge that if I were to get pregnant, and if I were to therefore need a ter termination, that I would have to go on this like difficult, expensive journey. And I don't think that was paranoid of me. I think every single woman in Ireland grows up with that. And oh yeah. And the thing is, I think there's this um, there's this expectation that abortion rights only affects the people who need an abortion, but the reality is that actually. But the, the reality is, is that if you grow up in a place where abortion access is incredibly limited, it changes your relationship to your body and your relationship to sex and your relationship to men and everything 
is hanged by this kind of cloak of fear comes over it and everything is the domino effect mentally that leads back to pregnancy and so therefore you are never carefree about your about your desire and you I feel like I probably have more sexual hang-ups than my London not now because you know I'm I'm very sort of happy and in a very stable relationship but I feel like I have more bats in the attic about that kind of stuff mentally in comparison to my peers who grew up in London or around it just because of this one fact about the country I grew up in and I don't think I'm alone in that and I think it changes how men relate to women sexually and I think it all so it, it's funny because we, we we obviously when we talk about the fight for abortion rights we think about the moment in which someone needs an abortion and those months and those weeks in which she can get that termination but uh, no one talks that much about how it sort of goes into the soil of a culture sexually you know and i hope this novel does that i mean it helps people understand that does but this is something i said to jenny back then was that i i i look around now and it's lots of my friends like to tell me about like jesus you picked a great time to be irish and i was like i did (laughs) you know we are everywhere right now we are everywhere in the arts The country is more progressive than ever. Um, You know, Irish actor and particularly Irish women are everywhere, you know. Ah, it seems that way. Yeah. And when I was growing up, Irish people, contemporary, contemporary living Irish people that people were interested in. It was like Colin Farrell and Damien Rice and and men, basically, Mm -hmm. Um, like roguish, sexy men. And Irish women didn't really exist on any plane at all. Uh, I didn't know a single... Irish woman sort of who was famous apart from Sinead O'Connor who everyone hated so much that she killed herself and you know like that like she was even when I was growing up which should have still been the peak of her power she was a national joke which is how she was treated people were unendingly cruel about her and there was I, no, I did not realize that at, no, at all horribly it's cruel. so different in the US yeah yeah uh, particularly in the last few years, um, once she, her, her conversion religiously and yeah, the Irish press was was awful about her. And even like someone like Dolores O'Riordan, who was in the Cranberries, who also, you know, committed suicide or Dolores O'Riordan, listening of the Cranberries, also somebody who couldn't do being an Irish woman and being famous. And then there was the chorus, I guess, who just sort of disappeared behind the veneer of of um, sort of shiny hair and not really being themselves publicly. You know, they didn't, they weren't like Sharon Horgan or Ashling B or Sally Rooney or any of the many women you see. Oh God, just, Sharon Horgan is, is such a gift oh to, the, to the world. I, 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 I can't stop thinking about her and the bad sisters. Oh my God, I know, I know. And like Dairy Girls, I mean, there's so much stuff where it's just like Irish women yelling at you about how their lives are. <laughs> um, and I'm I, here for it. I'm here for it, and I'm uh, trust me, Chris. I'm cashing in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do it. Run with it. <laughs> Run with it, because the, the trend won't last. Um. So, so anyway, um, I say that. But I think. I think part of the reason why we're so forefront of the culture, it seems, right now, is that we lived with this incredibly. Um, draconian set of reproductive rights 
we overturned them. And I think, and when that happened in 2018, it was like this fury that unleashed. And like, it's like we knew how powerful we were. We had fought for something for years and we had won. And it was like this burst of energy that just flooded out into the world and like made everyone bigger and brighter and smarter and stronger. And I, I guess I just only, I can only hope that happens in the US too, you know? I, I, I feel like we've already been made dumber and and more cowardly and 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 that it affects so many people's lives and as you say it's it's foundational it's the yeah. soil it it's yeah. everyone it's it's not just women it's it's the men in their lives it's their families it's the relationships at the very beginning of the relationship before you've even had intimacy to the you know to the very end when you have oh. to think about going elsewhere for for an abortion, um, it like so many other things in the U.S., it vastly over the burden goes to poor women, women of color, first and foremost, and in and in and more profound and immediate ways, people who can't travel, and yeah, I and and you explained so beautifully how you can come alive after that. But I feel like we we sadly are in are in the you know the moment of the the last bit of soil being thrown on top of the of the coffin of that of that progressive yeah. moment. Yeah, it, I'm so sorry. I really yeah. I really am. I just uh, being a American right now. It, it seems from speaking to friends anyway. It, it just you must feel so helpless because the country used to feel so big and so powerful and you used to feel like if it seems like agents of it and now you're victims of it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you would you would whether this was true or not you could look out onto the world and say ah we're doing we're doing some things right you know yeah. even if you knew there was a a, a longer a more complicated history with lots of bad things you could say ah we're making some some choices and bending towards justice and that that just all feels flushed down the toilet by 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 really a rather short period of time which is always how it happens like history shows yeah. you have these downturns that happen very quickly but in in any case the 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 way that you know that history of Ireland that you're capturing there then contrasts with the present and and as you say the everywhereness of the Irish woman is 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 wonderful I I want to so that we don't end on such a glum question no I'm, I'm having a lovely time chatting by the way I'm really enjoying this conversation oh me too me too um I want to talk about the first book of your YA fantasy series all our yeah. hidden gifts which happens to be one of my son's favorite books I knew about that book well before I had this book on my on my radar, and I, I didn't know much about you other than that you were the author of of that book. You know, it's it's obviously clear the ways in which fantasy the fantasy genre diverges diverges from so called literary fiction. But I'm more interested in the in the similarities, and I'm wondering what kinds of overlap in the in the way you conceive of characters and the pro creative product that you find between your genres of writing so i i still don't know it's it's um it's fascinating to me because i'm i'm writing on a a new ya book right now which is not in the all our hidden gifts series it's a kind of a standalone thing set totally in a fantasy world so my fantasy brain is working harder than it ever had like as an entire when you're when you're inventing a new world, you have to do like entire systems of currency and religion and government, and it's it's such a huge mental task. Um, and 
for me, and it's weird. I don't really have any friends who who do this as well. So mm. apart from my friend Catherine Rundle, who um she you know wrote a huge nonfiction book about John Donne that was a bestseller, and then she wrote a huge children's fantasy that was a bestseller. But you know she's she's also you know just an angel, so it's hard to relate. Um, yeah, that's that's about as far on the the outer edges of that spectrum that you could get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas I'm like I'm like pretty successful as a young adult uh, novelist and I'm pretty successful as an adult novelist it's like I, you know I'm kind of just making my way I don't know <laughs> like um all I can say is that you know when so to go back to my first book again which was a uh contemporary fiction novel that included a lot of like magical realism very fairly the critical response to that was like you know she's she's a pretty good writer I guess but she really what like what's what's going on kind of thing and it was clear like it was it's looking back on that book it's like somebody who's clearly extremely relate like extremely interested in like office world politics and real world sort of like people in rooms talking and how those conversations don't go to plan and then what happens next kind of thing um and somebody who is just completely enthralled by the impossible and what the impossible tells us about the now and how i don't know I, I there's there's something about pushing something to its absolute limits that really thrills me like for example within the all our hidden gifts series there's a there's a moment where these two girls are sitting on a bus and they realize there's a man who's watching him them and they're figuring they're trying to figure out what to do about this guy who's watching them and that's a very normal thing for teenage girls to go through right is to be uncomfortable because they're getting unwanted attention from someone they understand but then you know in the all hidden gifts universe that that person is literally a threat and he's following them and he's from this sort of like magical terrorist organization that wants to you know sap and kill them <laughs> and there's something really liberating to me about making all the internal paranoid anxiety driven fears of being a young woman and saying you have every right to feel scared because the world is scary and and look at them but then also julie being like you have every right to feel powerful because look how powerful you are and and, and giving these girls like literally magical powers to fight them off and there's something yeah. about that that finding those two extremes of like you are really this under threat and you are really this powerful. I mm. find that very exciting. And it's particularly, I find, you know, the the writing of my YA and the writing of my adult novels, they really don't feel that different when I'm sitting down writing them, but it feels very different when I'm promoting them. Because when you're promoting... Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because when you're promoting an adult novel, you essentially get to have lots of lovely conversations like this, Chris. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> You get, like a lovely, intelligent person asking you thoughtful questions and they have to listen to you forever. <laughs> but when you're promoting a young adult novel, there is a, a legitimate public service aspect to it because you're going to schools, you're working with charities, you're talking to often to kids who like, you know, you're, you're for example, you're there in their school because there's a, a, a sort of a grant system that, that means that every kid in that school got uh, your book for free because the local library paid for it because otherwise yeah. they wouldn't have a book, you know. Um, and you get you get to be on the coal face of 
of that. And you get to be in communities, even if it's just for a day or a couple of days or a week, if you're doing a teaching thing. And that that's changed my life. And it's, you know, Zadie Smith has this thing where she talks about she's not interested in being a writer unless she can be part of the commons. And writing young adult fiction, it, it's the most where I feel like part of the commons, you know? Oh, oh beautiful. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that aspect of it, but I, that seems like it must be a wonderful and just community-entwined way of being a writer. I like yeah, it very much. totally. And also, nobody's interested in giving you a compliment, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, um, like, even the kids who love your work are, and, and you in, in every classroom, you might get two who actually read it and who love it, and they just want to tell you about the thing they're writing, or they want to ask you questions about how you did it. They're not you know, they're not looking to impress you with a lovely question or a lovely comfort, you know? Mm. Well, and that, and in that way, you, you, you do away with the artifice and it's, it's yeah. really a much more, a much more natural thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although I love this. This feels very natural. <laughs> Before I let you go, I, I would love to know what you were reading recently and, and what you'd like to share with us and, and recommend from your own nightstand table. Absolutely. Um, so I, I just think I mentioned to you already, I just finished Tom Lake by Anne Patches. I'm dying to read this. I haven't, I haven't had a chance yet, but I hear nothing but great things about it. It, it is um, so wonderful. And it's such a good, if, I mean, this is so self-aggrandizing to be like, if you like my book, you might enjoy a little writer called <laughs> Anne Patches. <laughs> <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 it it's, um, a kind of a, a more grown-up version of Rachel, let's say, um, of, uh, you know, she is this, you know, woman looking back on this very formative time in her very early 20s when it felt like the life was, her entire life was before her, this extraordinary thing that happened and how it shaped her forever. Um, uh, except it, this is set, you know, in the kind of early 80s, I think, and it's all in Summerstock Theatre um, in Michigan. What's actually lovely about that experience is... Um, I had it on Audible where Meryl Streep narrates it. Meryl Streep? You're kidding me. Right? Way to go, Anne. Way to That's go, it. Anne. I know. It's incredible. <laughs> Way to go. What's great about it is that, like, because Meryl Streep is, like, obviously everyone knows her and loves her, but no, we don't really know that much about her other than, like, very spare biographical details. So because she's talking about being an actor in Summerstock Theatre in the early 80s, you can almost believe it's Meryl's story, even though you know it isn't, wow. you know? Now I have to, I'm going to listen to it on, on audio. Please uh, do, please can't, do. It can't be missed. Yeah, no, it cannot be missed. Um, and uh, so the other things I've been reading, I'm, I'm just starting tonight, actually. My partner is out, so I'm going to start Zadie Smith's new book. Mm. So that's going to be great, I think, because actually that that story, you know, the, the Titchfield claimant that's based on. Yeah, yeah. I had just weirdly, I just finished reading this book, which I really do recommend. I can't remember the author's name, but it's called Washington Black. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's re I just finished that. I got it from my local library. I loved it. And I just I'm really interested in that kind of period Victorian novel. That's kind of these big grand sweeping adventures, you know. Another one I read, I read it for the first time this year, and I, I've had a hangover from it ever since, is uh, Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norell. Oh, yeah, that's a, such a trippy Dickensian book. Right? Like, yeah, I, I do sort of love that, people having their take on, on Dickens novels, even though I've never read Dickens at all. So, yeah, those are the big things right now in my head. 
I, I love those. I'm I'm about to read Fraud as well as Sadie Smith's yeah. one, and I'm and now I'm going to listen to Tom Tom Lake. Yeah, sure. I've got to hear hear Meryl do it right. <laughs> but I, I just can't recommend enough the Rachel incident to my listeners. I, I think it's really an extraordinary book and a wonderful part of that long lineage of university adjacent, if not campus, novels. And talking with you has been such a pleasure, Caroline. I've loved it, Chris. This is one of my favorite interviews I've done. I really mean that. Ah, that that <laughs> makes my my heart grow three sizes. And I have had the wonderful opportunity to listen to Sentimental Garbage, oh. and I want to recommend that as well. I, I think it won Cultural Podcast of the Year. Am I am I right in thinking that? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, it's fine that you think that. Um, it's great that you think that. No, it won um the Book Podcast of the Year at London Book Fair. But uh, that's maybe even better. So please run out to your local indie and get a copy of The Rachel Incident and then have a listen to Sentimental Garbage. And I hope we'll have a chance to, to talk again soon. Thank, Thank you, you so much. <laughs> Well, that's all from me for now. A million thanks to the brilliant and hilarious Caroline O'Donoghue for a wide-ranging and absorbing conversation about all things, but especially her latest novel, The Rachel Incident. Make sure to listen to her wonderful and side-splittingly funny podcast, Sentimental Garbage, if you happen to care even a little bit about culture, the high, and the lowly. You can find links to purchase The Rachel Incident and all of Caroline's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.